Hello and welcome. You're listening to Outstanding in Their Field, an agricultural literacy discussion. This podcast is brought to you by New York Agriculture in the Classroom and the Iowa Agriculture Literacy Foundation as we explore how agriculture meets some of our most basic needs of food, fiber, and fuel. We'll hear from educators who are creatively teaching and inspiring their students in food and agriculture. And we'll hear from industry experts showing the technology and science of modern agriculture and food production. Hello and welcome to this episode of Outstanding in Their Field. Today's topic is all about beef. We're going to hear from a beef cattle producer and then hear from a teacher who has done incredible things with a high-stakes beef marketing contest. Hi, my name is Will Fett, and I'm with the Iowa Agriculture Literacy Foundation, and I am your host today for this episode of Outstanding in Their Field. On today's episode, we're going to visit with Corrine Rao, who is a cattle farmer. She raises beef, and we're going to be discussing everything from pasture management to animal care and welfare. Kareen is passionate about her animals and is dedicated to ensuring quality beef hits not only her family's plates, but also the plates of consumers across Iowa and across the U.S. So my name is Corinne Rao. My husband, Justin, and I farm near Dallas Center, Iowa. We have a cow-calf herd, so Red Angus, Mama Cows, and Baby Calves. I always tell people our last name is really easy to remember because Rao rhymes with cow. So when you look at the spelling R-O-W-E, you want to say something different, but Rao rhymes with cow. I serve on Iowa's Beef Industry Council Board, which oversees the checkoff funds here in Iowa. Justin serves on the Iowa Cattlemen's Board, so the policy side of it. And then we have two children. Charlie is nine and Anna is six, and Charlie would already like to farm full-time and put education on the back burner. He is a farm boy at heart. Very cool. Tell me more about Red Angus. What is that? Where are they going? What's your end market? Justin grew up with both Black Angus and Red Angus. When he split his herd from his dad's after he got out of Iowa State, he really preferred the Reds. So he bought all of the red cows from his dad, and that was an easy way to distinguish the herds and the pasture. We like the Angus. They're a really good mama cow. They take really good care of their calves. They have good mothering skills, and they're also a smaller framed animal, so they have smaller calves. It's easier for them to have them. We raise the mamas. The baby calves stay with them until they're six to seven months old. Then we wean the calves and start them on feed. So usually a corn, hay, and distiller's ration. We get them started on feed, then they go to my brother-in-law's feedlot. So it's nice, it stays right there in the family. We have that full circle. They'll stay in the feedlot four to six months and get a corn silage, hay, and again, distiller's ration, and then they'll go to the processing facility. That's where the majority of our calves go. We do sell five to 10 every year to customers as freezer beef. So they'll buy a quarter to a half an animal from us. We work with a local locker to process it, and then they get to pick their cuts of beef from that. Let's break that down a little bit more. So a calf is born, let's start there, or maybe even back up before that, what happens for the gestation and pregnancy of the cow, and then let's get into the calf being born. Um, So when the females are 15 to 16 months old, we turn a bull in with them, the male. We do use all bulls on our farm. We don't do any artificial insemination. 
So about that 15 to 16 month of age, they go with the bull. And then around two years of age, they have their first baby calf. And why do you do that? Why do you choose a bull versus AI or artificial Um, insemination? AI is a lot more work because you want to have all of your females bred at the same time. So you need to give them all a hormone shot to synchronize their estrus cycles. I believe it's 10 days after the first shot, you have to give them another shot. And then 48 hours after that, they get their third shot and you artificially inseminate them. So it's very labor and management intensive and also more time consuming because you have to buy those hormone shots. You have to pay someone to artificially inseminate them. Justin and I do not know how to do that. So we pay a vet. Plus you have to buy all of the semen. It's just a lot more work. So we choose to go with the live bulls. We buy them from a family out in Colorado. So we get their sale catalog, just like you have a toy catalog for kids to look through with all the pictures and descriptions. (laughs) There's pictures of all the bulls, tells you when he was born, what he weighed, what he weighed at weaning, and just gives a lot of data about him and his parents that help you pick. So we want to pick bulls that have low birth weight, meaning that calf should weigh 50 to 60 pounds. We want his mama to have been a good mama to him and produce a lot of milk to raise him. And the company we buy from, or the family farm, I say company because they have incorporated in their name, but it is three family members that own it. They really breed for disposition in their bulls too. So they're not pets by any means, but they're calm enough. We feel safe having them in the pasture and we can take the kids around on a four-wheeler and that and not have to worry about any mean animals, so. Very cool. So you put the bull out in the pasture with the cows, bada bing, bada boom, what happens? Pretty much. So when it's a live bull with the cows, you don't have to do that synchronizing to get all the females in the same cycle. So the bull goes in, they're all out at pasture, grazing grass and having fresh water supplied to them. The bull will stay with the cows about 70 days. So that should give him several chances to get the cow pregnant. And what time of year is this? We want to start calving in May of every year. So our bulls go in in mid-August. Sometimes if it's extremely hot in August, that's not conducive to getting females bred. So we will delay it maybe and go later August. All right. So the cow gets pregnant and how long is then gestation? Gestation is roughly nine months. So around the 1st of May, we want to start having those baby calves. Because the bulls are in there about that 70-day time frame, ideally all the calves will be born in 70 days. Now, there's always a few that will go a little early or a little late outside that. We have about 65 mama cows, so we should have 65 babies in 70 days if everything works out correctly. So it's very intense in those days. We're down at the pasture daily, checking on the mama cows, seeing if anyone's in labor, if anyone's had a calf since the last time we were there. We want to make sure mom is taking care of her baby, mothering it, that the calf is up nursing. The calf will get an ear tag in its ear. The number on the tag matches mom's number, so we can match them up. The date of birth is also written on the ear tag. And then we have a book we keep all the records in, too, as to what day it was. Was it a male or female calf? What it weighed? And just note if everything's going okay or if there is a problem, we'll write down what that is so we can keep monitoring them. And then calf and mom will stay at the pasture until the calf's about six months of age, and then we will wean it. We do what is called side-by-side weaning. So on weaning day, we separate them. So mom stays on one side of the fence. Calf is on the other side of the fence, but they can see each other. So it's very low stress to both of them because they still have that visual connection to each other. It just allows it to go very naturally. And after three or four days, we take mom and move her one pasture away. So it's a distance away. They can still see each other, but they're not right as close. And then we'll just keep doing that 
every few days and gradually get mom far enough away that she can't see the baby. The calves stay put in their pasture because moms are easier to move and know the routine of moving between different pastures better. And at that point, then we'll haul the calves to our house, put them in the lot there and start feeding them that grain and hay mixture. While they're out in the pasture, are you supplementing feed in any way? We do. So we start them on pasture, ideally mid to late April when the grass starts growing in Iowa. It can vary year to year. So they are on a grass until usually about November when it really quits growing for the year. We supplement them with a mineral in the summertime and a different mineral in the winter to meet their nutritional needs. Our vet recommends that because the cows have different needs over winter because they're pregnant growing next year's calf. And the grass has gone dormant, so they're getting different nutrients. So they get a mineral supplement all year round. They also get a block of salt they can lick on. Cows really like that, so that's mixed in with the mineral. And then we feed what's called distiller's cubes. It's basically candy for cows is how I describe it. It is an ethanol byproduct, so it's a corn base. It's a very sweet taste to them, but there's also a lot of protein and corn, which gives them energy in it. We buy that in 50-pound bags and string that out and let the cows eat the pellets out of there. And it's also a good tool for us that usually Justin, my husband, spreads out the cubes, and then I'm counting the cows to make sure everybody's there. So it's another management tool for us that they're eating something they like, but we can make sure we have everybody where they're supposed to be. So now do all of the calves go on to the feedlot then? So when the calves are weaned, all of them come to our house and start getting that corn ration just to get them used to eating it and eating from feed bunks because they've just been grazing grass up to that point. We will keep some of the heifers back into our herd to become mama cows later in their life. About two months after weaning is when we will pull them out to a different pen and then the rest will go into the feedlot. How would you define a heifer? Heifer is a female animal. Before she's had a Before calf. Before she's had a calf. Okay. A cow is a female that has had a calf. Okay. A bull is a male that is intact. A steer is a male that is not intact. I.e. castrated. Yes, sir. And the reason we do that is bulls can get mean as they get older, so we do want to castrate them. So you castrate all of your male animals, and so what ends up going to the feedlot are steers. Our steers and any heifers that we do not want to keep as mama cows later on. About how many calves do you hold back to replace your breeding stock? How many heifers? We hold back about 15 every year on average. So then it all stays in the family. The calves go on to the feedlot, which is a separate business, but still kind of in the family farm. Tell us a little bit about that. So Justin has one brother, Tanner. And growing up, they farmed, you know, with their dad from high school on. So they did the row crops together, the cow-calf, and the feedlot. When the boys got out of college, Justin decided he really wanted to focus on the cow-calf side. And Tanner preferred the feedlot side. So it was just kind of a natural break to say, we'll each take over that part of the entity. Their dad still does have a cow-calf herd of his own. He still kept the black cows. So that's nice. It's all family and connected, and we can help each other with chores. My brother-in-law lives a quarter mile away from us. So when the calves go into that feedlot, they're still very close to us. We can still go up there and look at them and keep an eye on it. And he knows where those calves came from because he knows how we take care of our cow-calf herd. And how long are the steers and heifers, how long are they in the feedlot? Six to eight months on average, just depending how fast they put weight on before they are harvest weight. 
and then he sends them to a processing facility from there. You're very knowledgeable about all things beef. What was your educational background, your training? How did you kind of get to where you are now? I grew up on a brown Swiss dairy farm in eastern Iowa. We did sell the milking herd in the late 80s, so just about the time I was getting old enough, Dad would let me start milking. We sold the herd, but we always kept heifers around to show in 4-H. We raised some dairy steers to make money for college. And then I went to Iowa State and got my bachelor's degree in dairy science, expecting to go work in the dairy industry in some capacity. And then I met a beef farmer. (laughs) So I like to tell people I still get to have the joy of working with cattle every day in our herd, but the beef cows are a lot less labor intensive because we're not milking them two to three times a day like we were the dairy cows. You mentioned having to go out and check the pasture, but I know it varies by time of year. What would a typical day look like as you're caring for the animals and as you're going through your chores? Mm -hmm. In the spring, of course, a lot more labor every day, looking for those baby calves, making sure they have ear tags in them, making sure mamas and babies are paired up. Every time we're at the pasture, we're checking the mineral feeder to make sure they have enough mineral to eat. We're looking at the grass in that paddock. And a paddock is a smaller area of a pasture. So say the whole pasture is 40 acres. We divide ours into smaller 10 to 12 acre paddocks and then rotate the cows through those. So we're monitoring the grass to see if there's enough in there for them to keep eating or if we need to move them to the next paddock. We're checking the exterior fences of each large pasture to make sure those are okay. We're checking the water tanks. We have all rural water piped in there. So they get fresh, clean water in a tank that refills itself every time the water level gets too low. There's an automatic float in there measuring water level. So none of them are drinking out of ponds or streams, which also is better environmentally because then the cows are also not walking through the ponds and the streams and getting dirt and stuff off their hooves or going to the bathroom in the stream. So the spring is really labor intense doing all that. And we're also moving the cows about every two days into a new paddock because having just had a baby, they're eating a lot at that point. So we need to make sure they have plenty of food. It slows down a little bit in the summer, then they're moving about every three days. But we're still riding through the herd on our four-wheelers, checking moms, checking babies, making sure there's no health issues. It just takes a little bit less time because we're not tagging new baby calves and spending time watching to make sure they're nursing. And then in the fall, when we wean the calves, that's about a full day's worth of work, just getting moms and babies separated to make sure everybody's where they're supposed to be in the new paddocks. So it sounds like you're trying to take really good care of these animals, right? Paint us a little picture. What does this pasture look like? Are there beautiful trees in the background and a nice flowing river? (laughs) (laughs) So the winter pasture does have a lot of trees very specifically so it would provide shelter to the cows when it is storming or freezing rain which we sometimes get in Iowa. They're very pretty in the summer when you know the leaves are on them and all that but in the winter that's why we specifically put them in that pasture to have that shelter from the trees. There is a creek running on the back side of it again that is fenced off so they're not drinking out of it which will ice over in the winter so again for their safety we don't want them walking across ice that they could potentially break through they are a thousand to twelve hundred pound animals at this point in the summer it is absolutely gorgeous in the spring when we have those red cows the green grass has started growing you have blue skies and then all summer it's just gorgeous and then our summer pastures do have a lot of trees as well because we want that shade for them to get out of the summer heat so we strategically move them throughout the summer and winter based on Iowa's weather too if we know there's a really good hot streak coming up we make sure the pasture they're in has plenty of trees for them Same thing in the winter. If there's a blizzard forecasted, we want to make sure the area of the pasture that we have them fenced into 
has a lot of tree cover for them. That's so cool that you're really being intentional about your management for the betterment of the animals. Right. How has farming cattle changed in the last 10 years or in the last 50 years or even in the last 100 years? Give us that timeline. Uh, We just talked about that at the Iowa Cattlemen's (laughs) Convention this week. You know, the idyllic 1920s vision of a farm where, you know, everybody had three milk cows and beef cows and some chickens for their own eggs you know, kind of a little bit of everything to feed your own family doesn't really exist anymore. Farms a lot more now are specialized. You know, you're growing specific grow crops to meet your region or you're growing just beef cattle or just dairy cattle. I know on our farm, when I met Justin in the late 1990s at college, you turned the cows into all 40 acres of a paddock and just let them graze that. And you had a pond to drink out of because that was standard practice. And they got food, they got water. They what got else food, you eat? They got water and that's what everybody did. And then, but there's got to be a better way to do it there's a better way so he and i started doing some research on our own and that's how we got hooked up with the farmer in colorado where we buy bulls from we started really listening to some facebook lives that he was doing and reading the newsletter he sent out about breeding for those smaller birth weight animals so it's easier on mom and then you don't have to assist her in labor having large calves that are hard on her and hard on the calf we started doing rotational grazing meaning we take that 40 acre paddock divide it down into four 10-acre paddocks. So I like to compare that to a buffet. You know, if you go to a buffet and you get all, you know, 100 choices under the sun, I'm going to stick to probably some pastas, maybe a little bit of vegetables, and then the dessert at the end. Where if you narrow my choices down, I'm going to have less to pick from, but maybe I'll pick more of a variety of things. So maybe there's a corner of that paddock that the cows just don't like to graze. There's good grass there. It's just not their favorite kind. Well, now they don't have 40 acres to pick from. They have 10. And all of our cows will easily fit in those 10 acres. That's something else we watch, too, is they have enough room. So it just utilizes that area a lot better, makes them graze more of it. But then we also get that organic matter back into the soil because they're going into some of those corners maybe they wouldn't have grazed before. And now they're dropping their manure there, which works back into the soil to help improve the soil health. And we've trenched in all underground water lines. So nothing drinks out of ponds and streams anymore. That's something we've personally seen on our farm is just that change in mindset to get better utilization of the pastures, give them a better water source, be better stewards of the land by managing those pastures better and getting that organic matter back into them. So you're cattle farmers, you're beef farmers, but in a way you're grass farmers. We are essentially in the growing season, we are grass farmers as well because we want that grass to grow to feed the beef. So... And it all kind of works in a big circle. It all circles back in because then the beef leave that organic matter into the soil, which helps the grass grow better. And So one of the things I think I understand about beef cattle is that you would put them on land that you would not otherwise farm a lot of times. Correct. Tell us about that. Why do beef fit into that segment of our land management strategy? Right. That part of our land use. So... The land that my brother-in-law grows corn on is very flat land, so it's really suited for those crops that you want flat, plant in nice straight rows. The land that we have our cattle on at the pastures specifically was bought to be pasture ground when my father-in-law got it back in the 70s because it is very rolling and sloping and there's very small pieces of it that are straight and flat for more than probably 40 feet and then rolling, gently sloping, it grows really great grass down there. And cattle are just really good at navigating that type of soil. And they're great upcyclers because that land's too hilly to be row crops. And if you don't have them out there eating the grass, then the 
grass and forage is just growing to waste, so why not put cattle on it, let them eat the grass, and we get a delicious steak at the end of the day. So they're also eating grass that we can't eat. What's that about? How are they able to get their energy and nutrients from grass? Why can't humans eat grass? Part of why cattle can do that is they are a ruminant animal, meaning they have four parts to their stomach, the rumen, the reticulum, the omasum, and the abomasum. Ruminant animals thrive on grasses, forages, that humans can't eat. So, you know, brome grass, clover, alfalfa for the hay that we feed them in the winter. Their stomachs really do a good job of breaking that down and getting nutrients from it. If you tried meat to feed me a flake of hay, like I just, there's no way, number one, that we would want to chew something like that and our stomachs just simply can't break it down having only a one part stomach what is the worst part of your job there's not really bad parts there's bad days but there's bad days and everything you know when it's a hundred degrees out and there's not a cloud in the sky that's not my favorite time to go check on my cows but I still do it because I need to but even then I'll go do it because I love seeing my cows or when it's you know, a blizzard out and you're fighting through driving snow, I want to go check on them because I want to make sure they're okay and that they're back in the trees and shelter where I need to be. So even though it's not my favorite day out there, I'm still going to go out there because that's what I need to do to take care of my cows. Flip side of that, what's the best part of your job? What do you love about farming? I love calving in the spring, finding those baby calves that are just, you know, hours old, nursing on their mom and then you know, figuring out how their legs work and starting to walk around the pasture with mom. That is just something I look forward to seeing every May when we start capping. Kind of melts your heart a little bit. A little bit, yeah. So you just heard from Corinne Rao, who talked about how her beef production operation works. Next up, we're going to hear from a teacher who has done some incredible things with her students, focused on beef, but she takes it much farther than that. Welcome to the podcast, Kelsey. Thanks for having me. So just give us a little bit about your position and what you do up at Gilmore City Bradgate. Yeah, so up in Gilmore City Bradgate, I'm the seed to table manager. So that's essentially just telling people how your food gets from the field to your plate. So I try to focus a lot on agriculture and nutrition because my background's in dietetics. And so say we grow popcorn out in the garden, then in the wintertime, we'll pair that lesson with how does the science work behind a popping kernel of popcorn and how does it taste? And we talk about nutrition benefits of the fiber of the popcorn and things like that. So I really take it from start to finish all the way through your body and the kids really seem to enjoy that, but there's a lot to learn. Absolutely. And what grade of students are you working with? Yeah, it's kindergarten through sixth grade. And then we do twice a month preschool. So four-year-old preschool, we do there too. One thing I thought was so interesting when I first met you was that your position seems a little bit unique. How did it come about? What was the interest of the school? Yeah. So our superintendent, Jeff Herzberg, heard about this position of a seat to table manager from the Muse School in California. It's a suburb of LA and how it made a difference of their kids' behaviors and how they get to learn hands-on and real life skills. And so he brought it back to our school board and to the teachers and they said, what can we do about this? We live in some of the most fertile ground in the United States. Why aren't we doing things like this here? So they put their heads together and put the money down and they figured out how to make it work and put an ad in the newspaper. My husband's family is from this area and so his dad actually saw the advertisement in the newspaper and I applied for it and got it right out of grad school and 
here I am today. That's so cool. And how long have you been in this role? Since 2016. Okay, very cool. So you take kind of what was intended to be an urban idea and plop it down in the middle of rural Iowa, but having incredible success. Mm-hmm, yeah, there are days of struggle and days um, that it's really rewarding too, and just trying to work through all the hurdles and trying to make sure that the kids are learning just everything that they possibly can. Correct me if I'm wrong. So there's kind of this assumption that if you're in a rural community, that you have some direct connection with agriculture or you live on a farm. And that's probably not the story of most of your students. Right. Yeah. So thinking about our school bus routes, there's probably 10 kids that ride the school bus that are really out in the country. The rest live in town or maybe their grandparents live on a farm. But realistically, a lot of people don't live on a farm or are so removed from the farm experience that there's only a handful of kids that actually know that like a combine takes corn and soybeans out of the field and feed cattle are different than dairy cattle and there's only really a handful of kids that actually know that stuff. And that's exactly what the focus of our ag literacy programs are is to really help bridge those gaps even though those students might see corn and soybeans and beef cattle and pigs every day they may not really truly understand how they're produced and how they become the food fiber and fuel that we use. Mm -hmm, Definitely. You described how you got the position, but give us a little bit more of your educational background and your professional training. Sure. I went to Iowa State University in 2010 and graduated in 2014 with my bachelor's in dietetics. Then I went on to get my master's and do my dietetic internship at Southern Illinois University in Carbondale. And I did my dietetic internship rotations in Springfield, Illinois at St. John's Hospital and Department of Human Services there. So getting a lot of background information about WIC and how women, infants, and children WIC program works and helping that on a state level and trying to fit programs to fit the communities um, in rural Illinois. So that's a little bit about me. So you're, again, bringing kind of a unique perspective to it. You have an agricultural background, but then you have a dietitian certification. So you're really able to help the students grasp that whole story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I definitely helped growing up on a family farm. Um, We grew up with corn and soybeans and beef cattle, and we had rabbits at our farm, too, and growing up in 4-H. And I always felt a little bit of a passion and a pull of family consumer science projects and how does the food not only get to our table, but what's the science behind that? And what if we substituted ingredients for it? And I was in a lot of sports growing up, too, and so I feel like from those passions just moving forward into my college degree. And it's like, okay, what do I really want to do? And what do I really want to pull out of this and help others learn as well? So you kind of do a laundry list of really cool projects with your students. Can you just give us a rundown of maybe a couple of those? (laughs) A couple of projects that we do. So I'll first point out the high stakes beef marketing competition. We've been doing that for, this is the third year now that we've been doing it. We have a local farmer, Jolene Peisel, that is also a paraeducator at our school. And so she's been really helpful in coming into the classroom and telling the kids, you know, I run this beef farm right outside of Gilmore City, and this is what I do and what our farm looks like. Um, So that's been really helpful. And then we've toured a meatpacking facility and done that also locally, and that's been helpful too. We do a lot with monarch butterflies, so from start to finish of growing, so having the monarchs lay eggs, grow the caterpillars out. This year, we shipped them out to different schools in our AEA districts, and that was a whole unique project in itself. And then we'll be starting on a bee project here soon, honeybee project. So the kids are starting to learn about a lot about honeybees, and they're really excited about honeybees because they don't know a lot. They're just afraid of getting stung and 
they want to know more about, well, how do they make honey and how do they fly and how far and how fast and why is there only one queen? And so they ask all these really great questions and they're really intrigued. And you are lucky to have some resources at your disposal, property on the school grounds. Last we visited you, we're intending to plant an orchard. Any updates there? Yeah, we have planted an orchard. So we have an orchard area and we actually have some grapevines in there now. And no, we're not making wine at this point. <laughs> a lot of community members ask about that. But this year we actually harvested a lot of grapes to make grape jelly. And that was a whole nother project we did during gardening classes. So we have done that. We have a garden space out back. Fun fact is our school bought both of those pieces of property for a dollar each. So we <laughs> kind of lucked out <laughs> on on that aspect too. We have those things. We have a monarch room that we converted from an old shower in a locker room because we just don't have high school sports there anymore and no real reason to have a shower facility. So I put a door on that, turned it into a monarch incubator essentially. And that's where we hatched our eggs and sent them out to the different school districts. So the new product with the honeybees is we're turning an old concession stand and kind of revamping it and making it up to health codes and being able to process honey in there in the fall. Lots of things going on. Fantastic. <laughs> it, it sounds really cool. And it sounds like you're using the resources at your disposal. It just takes a little creativity to think of a shower as an incubator. How <laughs> crazy, cool, awesome. Uh, yeah, thank you. When you have a smaller school district, especially like we have 92 students K through sixth grade right now. So we have small amount of kids. There's not a lot of resources to use. I feel like just being creative and thinking outside the box of what do we have here that we can make work, just seeing the benefit of being creative is really, really exciting. And then you kind of do a culminating project with your students, your Ag Innovation Showcase. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we've had the Ag Innovation Showcase the last two years where fifth and sixth graders, we combine for a gardening class. And so they team up into different teams or individuals and they compete kind of shark tank style. So they pick a problem in agriculture, build a prototype to fix that problem, and then present it in front of a panel of judges. So that's been really neat the past couple of years. And we decided actually this year to kind of change gears a little bit, and we're going to be doing a future food competition. So the students are going to be using crickets in their foods. And so it's going to be almost like a chopped competition, kind of a recipe development competition where they have to put crickets of some way, shape, or form, whole or ground into their foods. And then they'll present them to the community to vote on their favorites. And then they'll present them in front of a panel of judges as well. Very cool. I love the innovation. I love the way that you're engaging kids in hands-on learning. I think that just speaks volumes of what you've been able to accomplish, but really what kids are capable of as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's circle back around to high stakes. So the high stakes competition sponsored by the Iowa Ag Literacy Foundation, as well as the Iowa Beef Industry Council, your students create a marketing poster that helps market a beef product mm -hmm. and kind of along the way they learn about the nutrition aspects of eating beef and having beef included in a healthy diet. Tell us about how the students have received that project. I would say the first year there was a lot of enthusiasm for it. They were all gung-ho about it, but there was a lot of kids that were also in 4-H that had a beef background. They were like really excited about it, but they still wanted to learn why is beef such an important protein source in our diet? How can it make me better? How can it make me stronger and faster? Because the kids are learning about sports now too and how protein can benefit them. What were maybe a couple of examples of the products that the students chose to market? Yeah. So one of the kids last year picked flank steak. 
basically they just went on to the website of beefitswhatsfordinner.com, looked through the different cuts of beef, and then they picked things that maybe they haven't heard of that they wanted to learn more about. So they picked flank steak for one. Another group picked T-bone steak because they've heard about that, and they were like, well, if I eat a T-bone steak, maybe I'll be strong too. And, you know, they think about throwing it on the grill and how easy it is to eat. Let's see, I don't want to spill the beans, but this year the group is thinking about doing beef tongue and thinking about putting it into beef tongue tacos, so. And maybe because they have eaten or tried beef tongue tacos before? They have. So the Little Chefs Club that we have at school, they have tried beef tongue tacos. Myself and our food service director, Tiffany Thumma, we made regular beef tacos and then I had shredded beef already prepared and I said, you know, let's taste the differences between these two. And then after they ate it and we're about halfway through, we told them, you're actually eating beef tongue. Can you believe it? And a lot of kids were like, huh. I actually kind of like this. I don't know why more people don't like it. And these are kids who might not cook at home. They might help their parents, but they're becoming engaged in the whole food conversation then. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So these are kids that are just starting to learn the basics of cooking and they want to learn more and maybe don't have all the resources at home to do so, but they can come into our kitchen and learn the basics of cooking and how to prepare more than just cereal and milk or mac and cheese. Mm -hmm. And I like how you've kind of tapped into the students' interest of wanting to learn more about sports and then how the nutrition of the protein of the beef can enhance that. What kind of things do you really see that appeal to students and how do you tap into that? I think it's really important to get a feel for what is important to the kids at first. So previous years, it's been sports related. In other years, it's been really cooking related. In other years, it's been just agriculture related and they just want to learn about the cows. So I think it's really important to take a survey of what do these kids want to learn and really tailoring the lessons and maybe even the competition posters of, okay, well, if you're interested in that, go down that route. And rather than answering eight or 10 questions about why I think it's important, why do you think it's important and getting them involved in their learning and making sure that they're answering questions that they feel are important too. And then you toured a meatpacking plant to really showcase the process. We all love the live cows out in the pasture, (laughs) but ultimately they end up on our plates. Tell us about the students' experience there. So we went to Scoglands in West Bend area. At the time, there wasn't beef being butchered, but there was carcasses hanging up and they got to see bacon being cut from a slab because they had just done a hog that day. Just for them to understand that like, yes, a whole 1,600 pound animal comes in here, gets butchered, and then it gets broken down into these different cuts that you see in the grocery store. I don't think they put two and two together at first. And so for them to see that, in person and get to tour the facility and see that not only this is where my food comes from, but this is possibly a job that I could have someday was really cool for them to see too. I think a lot of teachers might shy away from that. The whole idea of talking about death or um, the butchering process being a little bit gory, but what's your take on that? Why did you think it was important for students to learn? Mm -hmm. Well, you have to get your energy from somewhere and it's going to come from some plant or animal somewhere along the lines that ultimately we're alive at one point in time. whether that's a plant or an animal. So, you know, I think we talked about, we had a permission slip that parents signed saying that we're going to go to this butchering facility. And if you don't want your kid to go, you can sign and say that you don't want them to go. But 
nobody returned uh, permission slips. I think it showed either that they didn't read the permission slip or that they thought it was really important for them to see. And we had a couple parents come on the trip too. As part of the high stakes, it sounds like you were really lucky and able to do a couple of field trips. Mm -hmm. But one thing you also did was a virtual field trip, a farm chat to Skype with a farmer and have a live interaction with students. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we did the beef chat with our Humboldt County Farm Bureau president. He he has beef cattle at his farm. And so we got to see what his beef cattle operation looks like. And he got to walk around the facility there. And that was really neat for the kids to see it in the classroom. We didn't have to get on a bus and haul them out there and make sure they wore boots and got dirty. And if they came back on the bus. So it was really neat for them to see it from the classroom and to ask real questions as we were walking through, ask the farmer, hey, how does that work? Or I noticed there's a cow in a pen by itself over there. Why is that? And it was just really neat for the kids to be able to see that from the classroom. And it takes away the stress of having to plan for a field trip. Kind of a 20 minute high impact experience Mm -hmm. versus a four hour (laughs) moderate impact experience. Yeah, definitely. And Yeah. yeah, it just allows it to like get in, get out, get all the information that you want to learn in that four hour field trip, but in a 20 minute experience, like you said, and that it was just really efficient. I mean, the kids get to see everything that they would see out in the farm anyways. And so it was really, it was a good experience for our classroom too. Cool. Cool. So it sounds like you got a lot of different moving pieces in your program. What does a typical day look like for you? I don't have a typical day, (laughs) to be quite honest. Especially in the wintertime, I'm always working in the greenhouse, preparing for the springtime and summertime. So like right now, I'm working on a lot of grants, that sort of thing in the summertime. I also do a lot with the chickens. I have to keep the chickens alive right now in the wintertime, but it's really just gathering eggs, making sure they have food and water. We have school chickens. We have six of them right now. So the kids have helped with that process too. They've hatched out eggs in the incubator and then we got to keep our chickens from there. And then working on just different workshops Like we're going to be having a seed soiree soon. So we're going to have different packets of seed and they're going to be planting some seeds for their summer garden. It's all based on community interests and whatever they want to do. So it changes all the time. So I know a lot of parents have said, I don't know how to make bread. Can you show us how to make bread sometime? And so then I can always tie in different things about like, well, this is how wheat grows. And if you have a gluten intolerance, and so we can talk about that in a class and these are some alternatives. And that's where my dietetics background comes in too. And that's really nice to be able to have that knowledge to share with other people. You've kind of already answered this and it is the charge of your position. But why do you think it's important for people to understand agriculture? Why do you take that extra initiative to connect agricultural production with food? For one, I've always thought agriculture is really interesting and there's always something to be learned about agriculture because it's always changing and evolving. But I think, too, that it's really important for people to understand where their food comes from, how to prepare it, how that food impacts your body. And I think it's all intertwined and really important to understand. The younger that we can teach these kids, the better off they're going to be and the more we can impact our health as Americans as a whole rather than trying to push pills and things to solve problems that have already come up because maybe you didn't learn how to eat healthy as a young kid. Mm -hmm. Imagine the start of the school year and the end of the school year. What changes do you see in your classroom or in the students as they start to learn more and more about agriculture? Mm -hmm. 
I've really noticed it since I've started in 2016 until now. The current third grade class was kindergartners when I started, and I've just seen them be able to answer so many more questions than like my outgoing sixth graders now. They know what plants need to grow. They don't even have to think about it. They know where your food comes from, that sort of thing. But I just see from the start to the end of the school year, we start really out in the garden. A lot of information that we start with is outside, hands-on, and then the wintertime, it kind of slows down so then we can learn about the things that we're preparing for in the summertime. And people are really excited to get out in the garden by the time summer rolls around, and so they're really excited and rearing to go for that. How do you see what you do supports what other teachers do in science and social studies and even language arts and math? What you're doing is not isolated. It all kind of relates. How do you coordinate that? Yeah, so science, math, it all intertwines with gardening classes, and it's definitely not individually based. I can definitely help teachers out if they're teaching a specific standard for, say, literacy or for math, then I can say, okay, well, if you're learning about groups of 10, well, then we can count seeds in groups of 10 and count to 120. There's always a way to apply it in gardening, and I I think that's why it's such a great resource for our school is that a lot of kids need that extra hands-on approach in order to understand what they're learning in the classroom. And a lot of our teachers do a lot of hands-on learning, but it's nice to have another application of, oh, I didn't think about math or science this way, that it's involved in everything that we do in everyday life. Do you see or have you been able to measure student advancement in test scores or just comprehension? There are some test scores that have been out there, and I couldn't tell you the exact percentages right now, but they've seen our standardized test scores have increased in the past few years. But we've also had an increase in enrollment in the past three years or so. So we've gone from 54 students to 92 students. So that's been quite a big jump. And we have a lot of younger preschool and daycare grades too coming up. So we try not to focus so much on test scores and more of, are we teaching this person to be a lifelong learner? And do they have the skills in order to be a competent adult in the real world? And no, they're not adults yet, but we're trying to train them to be more involved in society and able to answer questions and solve problems and get their hands dirty. So I liked how you described your students as becoming lifelong learners and maturing into that adulthood era. But what do you see as potential future careers for these students? What are they going to do after school? Mm, Good question. I know that there's quite a few students that are interested in becoming a vet and caring for animals. There's quite a few kids that would even try and do kind of vet tech things or even market for animal companies. For some reason, kids are always drawn to a live animal more so than plants, which is fine. People don't always like plants, and that's okay. <laughs> Just wait, wait till they get to college and then they flips. <laughs> yeah, and so things that move and that are interactive with them, they really enjoy that. So we've done a lot of research with monarch butterflies too, and so I think a lot of kids would even be interested in being an entomologist or doing something with insects. Even there's a lot of people that would want to be a chef. That's why we geared the competition this year rather than doing the Ag Innovation Showcase to the future of food because there's so many kids that are interested in cooking this year. So I think there would be a lot of recipe developers or food scientists or sous chefs, things like that. What's your favorite aspect of what you do? Either your favorite program that you work on or favorite part of your job? Yeah, um, I would say my favorite part of my job is seeing students that come back to me and say, wow, Miss Kelsey, that was really neat what we learned about today. And they go home and tell their parents and then their parents tell me that, oh, I never knew that about XYZ thing, whether it be about monarchs or it be about popcorn or whatever it might be, that the kids are excited enough about it 
to tell their parents about it and their parents are interested enough to ask me more questions about it. That's a really rewarding part of my job is that it's a kind of trickle down effect and it's affecting more than just the kids that we're teaching at our school. I asked about your favorite part. What's the worst part of your job? <laughs> I don't know if I have a worst part of the job. Then I have to go out in the middle of winter and still clean out the chicken coop. Does that count as being the worst part oh, of my job? <laughs> that could be really bad depending on how much snow. <laughs> so, yes. And yeah, but I'm really thankful that we have such supportive community members because even like this last week we got like five inches of snow and it was really hard to get back to the chicken coop. And I'm thankful for the people that are willing to do the chores for us over the weekend because then I don't have to drive to school. But I had a community member that was willing to come blow snow from the front of the gate to the back of the chicken coop. And she didn't want anything for it. And I was like, I'll repay you in cookies. Like, I love to bake. Please let me repay you. And she was like, no, I'm just happy to help. And I'm just super grateful for all those family members and community members that are willing to help out. Any final thoughts that you want our listeners to be aware of, of your program, or any final thoughts? Sure. Really, it's been really great to utilize the Iowa Ag Literacy Foundation resources and Ag in the Classroom lessons for gardening classes for us as well. You know, utilizing what's already out there instead of reinventing the wheel. There's a lot already out there and already put together, so utilize your time wisely, and the kids will always benefit from teaching about agriculture. I hope you enjoyed hearing from Corrine and Kelsey today. Be sure to follow our podcast on Instagram at Outstanding in Their Field Podcast, our website, and our Facebook page. For more information on the Iowa Agriculture Literacy Foundation, visit iowaagliteracy.org. Remember to subscribe to Outstanding in Their Field on your favorite podcast streaming service. Visit the show notes to learn more about our guests today and follow their adventures on the farm and in the classroom. For now, thanks for listening and stay tuned for next time when we hear from more folks who are outstanding in their field.